read a couple of verses from the 13th Psalm. Verses 5 and 6. But I have trusted in your loving kindness. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. Our Father, we are truly grateful that you are the one who has chosen us and has lifted us out of darkness into your marvelous light. You're the one who walks steadily millennium after millennium. You do not change. You're the same today as you were when Abraham walked the earth and when Noah was here. And Lord, so we trust in your word and pray that the truth of your word will become hidden in our hearts and will manifest itself through our lives. Even as we look at this, uh, some more at this Psalm of David today, where the word of God was shining forth from his light, life and uh, touching those around him. Father, I pray that you will grant strength and encouragement. I do pray for those from our class that are in Mexico, that you will keep your hand upon each one. You'll keep them safe. You'll keep them not only safe from accident, but from injury and from illness. We pray that the whole group will just sense the power of God radiating in their midst and from them to the people that they're there to serve. Those that are doing physical things, uh, those that are doing teaching, those that are doing athletic events, whatever it might be, we pray, Father, that they will all be kept in the center of your hand and that you will touch many lives, that you will stimulate the uh, church there in Mexicali. At the same time, you will draw new individuals into your kingdom. We just thank you for your grace and love. I thank you for your presence here with us this morning and for what you're going to teach us from your word as we submit to you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. We are looking at 2 Samuel chapter 22. And as we noted last week and uh, even to the, the week before when we first started this particular passage, it is a psalm. It is essentially the exact same thing as Psalm 18. Only in this particular case, case it's set within the historical framework which it occurred. You probably notice that if you read through the book of Psalms, that the Psalms are not necessarily arranged in chronological order. And sometimes there's a little superscript up there which tells you mm, the setting of the Psalm, but sometimes there's not. So you're not even certain exactly when David wrote a particular Psalm, and of course not all the Psalms are written by David. But this particular Psalm, because of its significance relative to the events that uh, we read about in the first 21 chapters of the book of 2 Samuel has been placed at this point. So we are in the 22nd chapter reading at verse 21. 2 Samuel 22:21. The Lord has rewarded me according to my righteousness. According to the cleanness of my hands, he has recompensed me. For I have kept the ways of the Lord and have not acted wickedly against my God. For all his ordinances were before me. And as for his statutes, I did not depart from them. I was also blameless toward him, and I kept myself from my iniquity. Therefore the Lord has recompensed me according to my righteousness, according to the cleanness, my cleanness before his eyes. 
With the kind, you show yourself kind. With the blameless, you show yourself blameless. With the pure, you show yourself pure. With the perverted, you show yourself astute. And you save an afflicted people, but your eyes are on the haughty whom you abase. For you are my lamp, O Lord, and the Lord illumines my darkness. For by you I can run upon a troop, and by my God I can leap over a wall. As for God, his way is blameless. The word of the Lord is tested. He is a shield to all who take refuge in him. For who is God besides the Lord? Who is a rock besides our God? God is my strong fortress, and he sets the blameless in his way. He makes my feet like hinds feet and sets me on my high places. He trains my hands for battle so that my arms can bend a bow of bronze. You have also given me the shield of your salvation and your help makes me great. You enlarge my steps under me. My feet have not slipped. We'll pick up with the rest in a little bit. When you first read the first part of this passage, it almost sounds like spiritual braggadocia on the part of David, doesn't Where he says, the Lord has rewarded me according to my righteousness. <laughs> it sounds like David has a big head about how holy he is. But David is not here proclaiming that he has been saved by works of righteousness, which he has done. Nor is he saying here that he has earned, with the emphasis on earned, God's favor. Instead, what he is saying is that by believing in God, and by obeying his laws, David has become a channel of God's blessing. And, and that's what we all can be, channels through whom God flows. The Spirit of God comes upon us as we walk in obedience and as we uh, confess our sin before him, and, and he flows through us to reach out and touch the lives of those who are around about us. And that is really what David is saying here. You may remember that when Paul stood for, before the Roman governor Felix, he said this, I also do my best to maintain always a blameless conscience both before God and before men. He could do this because uh, Paul kept short accounts with God, quickly confessing his sin. Now, I, I realize that because we've been impacted through the centuries by the, the, the sainting of everybody, you know, saint this, saint that, and saint somebody else. And, and we always refer to Paul as Saint Paul and Saint Peter and Saint James and all these different people. And, and we sometimes put a, put a halo over their heads because that's the way they appear in the artwork of the medieval world. And, and some kind of a pious look on their, uh, on their face and it, as if they walk through life without ever sinning, you know, as kind of miniature little deities. Far from the truth. Saul was capable, uh, Paul was capable of sin, as was James and Peter and all of the rest of them. So Paul himself had to constantly go before God and confess his sin. I, I, I mentioned this one time, well, more than one time, probably many years ago, but I, I, I like to think of our walk with the Lord in that when we first come to know Christ, there's a light shining and that light is the light of his truth that shines into our lives. And as we look around the room of our lives, so to speak, uh, because of that light, which may be a little candlelight, we can see the big things that are there. And we can have God, you know, wash us clean of the big things that we see there. 
But as we walk with him, the light gets brighter and brighter and brighter as we walk with him in faith, as we're obedient, as we study his word. And we see the smaller and smaller and smaller things that are in our lives that need to be removed that we might walk faithfully with him. But we never arrive at that place where we're absolutely clean forever and ever. You know, we can go through an entire day or an entire week without ever making a single, committing a single sin. We never arrive at that point in life. But what we do his sin, striving to walk in obedience by the power of the Holy Spirit, could say this, I do my best to maintain a blameless conscience, both before God and before men. Paul advised Timothy that the goal of our instruction is love from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. A pure heart. Our hearts are only pure as they're washed clean by the blood of Christ. A good conscience. That conscience comes from having a clean heart and walking in obedience. And a sincere faith. A faith that is based in the Word of God. And we know it to be true. And so what, this is really what David is, is saying here. David is saying that because he had a clear conscience, both before God and before men, God would hear his prayer and God would deliver him from his enemies. We know when David speaks like this. We know from whence he comes. Because the sins in David's life, life were laid out for us. And we're going to run across another one yet in the next chapter. <laughs> After he wrote this psalm, you know. So, so David has not arrived at perfection. This side of glory, perfection is impossible except the imputed perfection that comes through the blood of Christ. As you read in, as we read in verses 26 through 30 of this particular passage, David emphasizes the justice of God. He says, to the kind, the actual word, Hebrew word there means faithful, the one who has appropriated God's grace for himself. To him, God will be faithful. That is, God will continue to manifest his hesed, as our pastor likes to keep reminding us, his grace, his mercy. To those who walk with him in the grace he gives, he continuously manifests that grace. Secondly, to the blameless, that is, those who have been cleansed by the blood of the Lamb, and have been imputed with the righteousness of Christ, God will show his completeness and he will show his mercy as well. Have you ever noticed that the closer you walk with the Lord, the more you can understand the perfection and the holiness of God? I think when we first come to know the Lord, we don't understand the Lord very well at all. And we don't really understand that how he can be merciful and just all at the same time. It's a battle we have in our own lives, is being just in what we do and yet showing mercy at the same time. Thirdly, David says, to the pure, that is to those who have clean hands before the Lord, the Lord will demonstrate his cleansing purity. We can be clean because God is absolutely clean and pure. Fourthly, to the perverse, to the crooked or the twisted is what is the meaning here. These are those that have rejected God's grace and have chosen to follow in the paths of wickedness. God will show himself 
And, and, and the word is translated in this translation, astute. It means discerning. It means that God is manifesting a shrewdness and an inscrutability. Have you ever noticed how the wicked, the people in the world, do not understand God? They say, well, if God is a God of love and He allows this to happen, then obviously God is, is not good. They don't understand God at all. They don't understand what is good. They don't understand love. They can't because their minds are dark. There is no light. They can't understand the truth. To the unconverted, God is a total conundrum, a total mystery. Absolutely. I don't know if you've ever tried to talk with a real pagan, you know, uh, about the things of God, and you might as well be talking Greek to them you know, <laughs> to understand. And you have to kind of back up and try to put yourself where you were when you and I were pagans and uh, didn't really understand God. Lastly, he says here, God saves the afflicted and he debases the haughty, the arrogant. God extends his grace to those who know they need it, but he does not give his grace to those who think they can do it on their own. And as I was thinking of this, it reminded me of this passage that I know you all know it very well, but it never hurts to repeat, I don't think, in Luke 18 in the 18th chapter of Luke, beginning at verse 9. This is a parable that Jesus tells of the Pharisee and the publican. And he also told this parable to some people who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and viewed others with contempt. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee, the other a tax collector. And the Pharisee stood and was praying this to himself, O oh God, I thank you that I am not like other people, swindlers, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I pay tithes of all that I get. <sighs> but the tax collector, standing some distance away, was even unwilling to lift his eyes to heaven, but was beating his breast and saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went to his house justified rather than the other, for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. That is one of the absolute keys to the kingdom, humility. And that's what you do not see in false cults. You do not see it in sex. You do not, S-E-C-T-S. -E <laughs> sectarianism, thank you. you. You do not see it in the big established churches. There's an arrogance there, a self-righteousness, <laughs> a following certain little rules and patterns and you can achieve. We're not told here that this publican, this tax collector, that this was the first time he ever came to the Lord. No, that's not, that doesn't say this here. Uh, he is simply admitting that he needs the Lord to cleanse him of sin every single day. But the Pharisee, oh yes, I have done, I have followed the formula. Therefore, I must be okay. That's why Jesus, in his teaching, you know, the guy says, I've never been an adulterer and so forth. That's why Jesus goes on to say, if a man has even looked with lust after a woman, he has committed adultery, because there's very few red-blooded men who haven't been tempted to do that. Verse 29 in this uh, passage in 2 Samuel has a beautiful little metaphor in it. The Lord is our spiritual lamp. 
which banishes darkness. What is darkness? It is the absence of light, is it not? And God is the light of the universe. We read last week in our lesson from Revelation chapter 22 that uh, those who will be in the heavenly new Jerusalem, the scripture says, shall not have need of the light of a lamp nor the light of the sun because the Lord God shall illumine them. You and I today are largely limited to the, eye, the, the light that comes through these things called our eyes certain radiations that come in certain wavelengths that in, you know, stimulate our brain and we see, we see, you know. But the, what we're, what's being talked about here is the true spiritual eyesight that we will all have throughout all eternity where we see even as we are seen, where we will know even as we are known. In every description that you read in, in the scripture about God sitting on his throne, you find an overwhelming brightness dominates the scene. You know, you, you read from Isaiah's passage and Ezekiel's passage and, and the others where they, they speak of this. In 1 Peter 2.9, we read that we are called out of darkness into His marvelous light. You, you struggle with those and you pray for those that you know have heard the truth but are not walking in it and you know that they're walking in darkness, and you pray that God will open their blind eyes. In 1 John 1, 5, we read that God is light, and in Him is no darkness at all. No darkness at all. So the closer we walk with Him, the more intensely we study His Word, the greater His light fills us, and the more we can see the more we can be discerning and understanding. In verse 30, David describes his sense of invincibility with God on his side. If God be for us, who can be against us? He was expressing the truth that we so often quote from <coughs> excuse me, Philippians chapter 4, verse 13, I can do all things through him, Christ, who strengthens me. I think obviously in both cases, whether you're quoting the Philippians passage or you're, you're reading uh, David's words here in verse 30 where he talks about running upon a troop and leaping over a wall, that in either case we're talking about an invincibility and an ability to do all things within the context of obedience to his will. In the strength of Christ, we can do all the things that He commands us to do. It doesn't mean we can just do anything. What we do is what He has commanded us to do. If we choose to run off on this tangent over here and do something that we have chosen to do that He hasn't directed us to do, we can't count on His strength to do it. And we will probably fail. We see this all the time. We see this all the time with groups that, that, that decide that they have a better understanding of the scripture than anybody else. And so they go off on their little tangent over here someplace and, and, and you know, they, they proclaim themselves to be the true people and everybody else's faults because they have chosen 
to follow their will rather than the will of God Almighty, which is clearly portrayed for us in the Old and the New Testaments of Scripture. In this passage from verse 31 down through verse 37, David is again exalting the character of God. I, I think that's one of the reasons why we so often turn to the Psalms. Not only do the Psalms give us comfort because there we find problems that we have, the psalmist has had, and sometimes we've, we hear a, a, the psalmist crying out almost as if in despair, or the psalmist is praying an imprecatory prayer, you know, wipe him out, kill him, destroy him, you know, referring to the enemies of, him, of himself and of God. But the psalms also describe the character of God for us. They often do it in a very poetic way, as we read before, uh, you know, God in the early part of the psalm where David, where God is traveling through the heavens on a chariot of clouds and all this kind of thing. I mean, it, it's, it's vivid portrayal, but it, of course, is describing things in the spiritual realm that you and I cannot see at this point. We take them by faith. So the character of God is extremely important that we understand. How can we believe him who we don't know? How can we love him whom we don't know. We can't. People who say, I love God, but don't know God, don't really love God. Love is a very intimate thing. And it's pretty hard to be intimate with somebody you don't know. Truly intimate. And, you know, it, it's, like, it's like the radio preacher who says, oh, I love you all out there in radio land, especially if you send me lots of money. Yeah, love offering. <laughs> it's nothing to do with love. You can't love somebody you don't know. David is emphasizing that God's way is blameless. You know, sometimes we do blame God. Oh, God, why did you let this happen? It's all your fault. It's the way we feel sometimes. And by the way, it's perfectly okay to say that to God. He's got broad shoulders. You know, a lot of worse things have been said to him. And he understands our heart and our frustration and our pain. And uh, he, he accepts us the way we are. What, what David is saying here is that he understands that God is not like the gods of the world who are capricious. They're duplicitous. These gods that are made with human hands. The true God exhibits unmitigated integrity. God is always going to act according to his character. He can never act out of character. That's why the God who is perfect, sinless, and good cannot do evil. He can allow evil, but he can't do evil, which is one of the big differences between him and Allah, or Allah, whichever way you, know, you want to say it. Because in, in the Quran, Allah not only does good, he does evil. God's word is trustworthy because it has been subjected to the refiner's fire of history. All through history, God's word has proven to be true to this very moment in time. It's been proven to be flawless in its application to our hearts and the trans... What am I trying to say? You know, the, the trans changing of our souls and our hearts. It's interesting how often, as you read through the Psalms, uh, God is described as a fortress and a shield. And, and David reiterates here that in this passage as well. He calls 
God a shield, a rock, a fortress. You all remember that uh, Lenin spoke against Christianity as, as a crutch. You gotta keep leaning on something. You're not strong enough to stand up. You gotta have a crutch. Well, you know, if God is our fortress, God is our shield, God is our high tower, that's pretty much running and fleeing behind the tower, right? And behind the shield. It's because people like Lenin are so foolish they don't even understand the spiritual warfare that's going on there and that they are literally pawns in the hand of the <laughs> devil himself and are going to perish with him. In this passage, David highlights the fact that there that not only is, a God, is God a fortress, a shield, a high tower, a rock, but he says there is no other God no other fortress, no other rock. There is none other that one can hide behind, that one can find for salvation. In verse 34, David begins to describe how God has given him success. One commentator puts it this way. He says, David is grateful to the Lord for giving him the sure-footedness of a deer, enabling him even to stand on perilous heights. If you've read the prophecy of Habakkuk lately, you know that the last verse of that passage ends with a quote from this particular psalm where Habakkuk says, The Lord God is my strength, and He has made my feet like hinds feet and makes me walk on my high places. See, Habakkuk understood what David understood as well. That the strength to live this life and to be victorious comes from God alone. We can't you know, you know, we can make ourselves physically stronger. You know, we can do our push-ups and our sit-ups and our pull-ups and our throw-ups and everything else that make us stronger. <laughs> but it is only God that can make us spiritually capable of accomplishing His purposes, of being on the perilous heights as David had been. Very perilous for David to be the king of an empire seen by everybody and to blow it as he did. David, of course, often speaks in effusive terms that have both physical and spiritual connotations. He credits God, for example, with strengthening him, protecting him. And he also credits God with preparing his hands and his feet and his arms for success in battle. God gives him the strength to pull the bow of bronze. Can't imagine trying to string and pull a, bro a bow of bronze, you know was bad enough for the uh, Welchman in the, in, the, in the 13th, 14th centuries, learning how to pull the, the longbow with this, this six-foot stick of yew and trying to pull that thing and, and fire those long arrows. But I can't imagine a bow of bronze. It, you know, it's, it's figurative. But the idea is the impossible can be done in the strength of God. Let's read on at verse 38. I pursued my enemies and destroyed them. I did not turn back until they were consumed. And I have devoured them and shattered them so that they did not rise and they fell under my feet. For you have girded me with strength for battle. You have subdued under me those who rose up against me. You have also made my enemies turn their backs to me and I destroyed those who hated me. They looked, but there was none to save, even the Lord but he did not answer them. 
I even pulverized them as the dust of the earth. I crushed and stamped on them as the mire of the streets. You have also delivered me from contentions of my people. You have kept me as the head of the nations, a people whom I have not known serve me. Foreigners pretend obedience to me. As soon as they hear, they obey. Foreigners lose heart and come trembling out of their fortresses. The Lord lives. Blessed be my rock and exalted be God, the rock of my salvation. The God who executes vengeance for me and brings down peoples under me, who also brings me out of my enemies. You even lift me above those who rise up against me. You rescue me from the violent man. Therefore, I will give thanks to you, O Lord, among the nations. I will sing praises to your name. He is a tower of deliverance to his king and shows loving kindness to his anointed, to David and his descendants forever. David clearly credits God with the destruction of his enemies. You know, this goes all the way back to, to when he slew the lion and he slew the bear with his bare hands. And when he slew Goliath and, and all the battles not only in the physical battles, but he is also certainly referring to spiritual battles. He was able to consume his enemies, to rout his enemies. His onslaught, he says in, in here, was so fierce that his enemies searched desperately for help. They even cried out to David's God. But David said his God did not hear their prayer, did not hear their cry. God did not save David's enemies because when David's enemies cried out, they cried out to God as they cried out to their own gods. They tried to appease, bribe, trick, or cajole God into doing what they wanted him to do. But God does not do that. We have to understand, and, and these had to understand, and obviously they didn't, that they could only approach God if they're willing to acknowledge that he alone is God. Look down through the pages of history. You know, sometimes sit down with a history book that really talks about the religious aspect of life and you discover that most of the people throughout all of history have had multiple gods. They, they, they have this God and that God and the other God because they want to hedge their bets because they're not really sure if this one's right. So if this one doesn't cover the whole thing, we'll take this one as well and this one over here as well. Of course, Paul made a big point of that in Acts chapter 17 when he talked about, and you even have an altar over here to the unknown God. Syncretism. In the ancient world, you ever wonder how it is, for example, that the ancient Sumerians ended up with a hundred or more gods? How in the world did he end up with a hundred gods? Well, because each little town has its own god, and as that town gets strong enough to capture the neighboring town, they absorb the neighbor's god as well. So they got two gods. And then they conquer a few others and they add a few more gods and pretty soon they have this whole pantheon of gods. And whichever city is the strongest, their god's a top god. <laughs> and, and, and you have all the other layers of gods depending on how weak the cities are. It's, it's, you know, it's, it's perfectly pragmatic. And, and, and down through time, uh, syncretism has been it. I mean, if you look at, for example, the uh, Catholic churches that went into South America uh, under the Spanish, they absorbed all the Spanish... I mean, the Native American ideas of gods and goddesses and, you know, the Aztec gods and the Inca gods and in some way or other, they were absorbed in, under the umbrella. And so you have Our Lady of whatever, you know, uh, Tenochtitlan. 
and, and she now has certain characteristics of the goddess that used to be there before, but now she's Mary, you know. And so you, you kind of Christianize all of these uh, gods, and it's a syncretism. The Jesuits were ultimately thrown out of, of China by the Chinese because the Pope finally says you can't allow the Chinese to be Catholics and ancestor worshipers, which the Jesuits were allowing because it would work. You know, you know, the people were willing to be Catholic if you could also allow them to remember to continue worshiping their ancestors. The Pope finally got, said, you, you can't do that. And when they tried to tighten down, they got all kicked out. Syncretism works. That's why Hinduism, you know, if you don't have militant Hindus, if you have normal Hindus, they get along with everybody because they just absorb everybody's religion. I mean, they have 330 million gods to start with. What's a few more make it any difference, you know? To them. But the God of the Bible can be only approached as the only God there is, as the one and only God of the universe, creator and maker of us all. And then he can only be approached with a total attitude of repentance, humility, and faith. Beginning in verse 44 of this passage, David exalts the Lord for enabling him to build and to rule a mighty kingdom. God helped him through the contentions with his own people. Uh, by that, of course, he's referring back at least to the struggles with Saul. Saul had been king. David was not related to Saul. So when Saul died, David wasn't the logical successor to Saul in the minds of many. And that's why we had Ishbosheth for a while, you remember. But David was God's anointed to become king. So it was God who helped him through that. And of course, there were civil wars and, and there were struggles. And then David also was exalted by God to have victory over foreigners. It mentions foreigners in this passage. He was able to conquer the Arameans and the Moabites and the Ammonites and the other peoples by the power of God. And they didn't want to serve him, but they were forced to serve David. And why did God do that? Why did God allow David to build an empire that, that stretched from the Euphrates in the north to the river of Egypt in the south, whatever that meant? Apparently it didn't mean the Nile. It apparently meant the brook of Egypt in the northern Sinai. But why did God give David this great empire? Was it because he won the glorified David? Well, only in the sense that the scripture says, he who honors me, God speaking, I will honor. And so certainly God honored David because David honored him. But no, beyond that, it was to give the opportunity to these pagan people to know the truth of the living God. You know, we don't think of Judaism or of the worship of Yahweh in the Old Testament as being evangelical. But it was. It's just that the Hebrews weren't very faithful in carrying the message. I mean, we, we know what happened to Jonah. God said, I want you to be a foreign missionary, and I want you to go over there and serve in Nineveh. And he says, uh, no thanks, God, I'm going the other way. <laughs> but God sent him there anyway. So the, the purpose of the empire was partly to give other peoples an opportunity to know the truth of the true and the living God. With that proclamation, what we discover is praise wells up within David and he shouts, the Lord lives, 
Blessed be my rock, and exalted be God, the rock of my salvation. Again, after crediting God with avenging him of his enemies and delivering him from the rebels and the assassins along the way, and we know, of course, that rebels were in his own family, Amnon and Absalom and then Sheba and, and all of those who rose up against him. God delivered him. And so David brings this psalm to a final crescendo when he says in verse 50, Therefore I will give thanks to you, O Lord, among the nations, and I will sing praises to your name. He, that is God, is a tower of deliverance to his king and shows loving kindness to his anointed, to David and his descendants forever. David understood absolutely that his power on this earth was totally rooted in God, that it wasn't by anything that he has done that he was able to rule this mighty empire, which was the largest empire that the Hebrews, Jews, have ever ruled in their history, including today. Think about it. Even today, the, the Jews have more mighty force today than they did in the days of David. I mean, they have horrendous firepower today. And, and yet they're squished in this little bitty country that you could put into San Bernardino County two and a half times. And yet, here, the weapons they had were just like the weapons everybody else had. Spears and swords and, and bows and arrows and chariots and horses. Uh, all the others had it too. And yet he was able to conquer this great empire because God enabled him to do it. Well, next time we're going to look at chapter 23, the first few verses, seven verses of which, are David's final psalm. The final word of the Lord through David to his people and to us is penned here in this chapter. And then the chapter goes on to give the human element that God used to build the Davidic empire. God works through people. He works through you, he works through me to build his empire. And so he worked through the mighty men of David to build this empire. God didn't just reach down and draw an outline on the ground and say, David, you rule this now because I've made all the people bow down to you. No, he used instruments. He used other humans. And he used warfare and defeated armies in order to build the kingdom. So you and I have to daily walk through battle and to be part of the spiritual struggle that goes on. Dr. Lucer this morning on the radio was talking about how people will, will, will praise God with great enthusiasm when they're released from this life and they say the pain and the suffering are finally over. I have tribulation, says the Word of God, but we also have victory. Be of good cheer, I've overcome the world. Amen. <laughs> yes.